Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, 1 Kings, chapters 9 and 10. Well, we moved into 1 Kings, chapter 9, last week. And the chapter begins sometime after the halfway point of Solomon's 40-year reign. And the temple is built, it's in operation, Solomon's extravagant palace is completed, King Shlomo's many building projects throughout his, throughout his kingdom have elevated his personal fame and, and Israel's national status. And monarchs ruling far-flung kingdoms are curious, they're envious of this amazingly wise king and this astounding wealth that this relatively small country has amassed almost overnight. <coughs> Unexpectedly, the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream vision just as he had two decades earlier at the beginning of Shlomo's reign. God brings a dual-edged oracle to Solomon. First, it is to confirm that he has heard Solomon's prayers and his petitions at the temple dedication ceremony not some 13 or more years in the past. And that he has been looking favorably upon them. And second is to issue a reminder that is actually a not-so-veiled threat. Yehovah reminds Solomon that despite all the adulation, all the notoriety that's being heaped upon him for his stupendous accomplishments, the future of Solomon's dynasty, the well-being of the nation of Israel, shall always be subject to the Lord's discretion. The idea is that Solomon should not take it that because Israel and its king have become the envy of the world, that somehow this is indicative that all is right between Israel and God. The accumulation of wealth and fame is not an earthly indication of righteousness or even harmony with the Lord. Rather it is that if Solomon expects for one of his sons to rule Israel after him, if Israel is to continue under God's blessing, then there are four conditions that must be met. And obviously, Solomon meeting those conditions is currently in doubt, or the Lord wouldn't have offered this warning. Now what's so interesting is that we find confirmation, yet again, of the biblical principle that a nation's fate, from God's perspective, is all wrapped up in its leadership. The ideal king is a shepherd king. It's a leader who, who leads for the benefit of the people and not himself. It's a leader who sees himself as Joseph was in relation to Pharaoh, a, a kind of underking, doing the will of the Almighty King. In God's economy, Israel's leader is the ideal example of all leaders, 
was first and foremost to lead his people down godly paths using God's Torah as the map. Like a shepherd, it's not a matter of asking the sheep where they want to go and taking them there. Nor is it a matter of forcefully or deceptively taking the sheep someplace they ought not to go because it's dangerous or it's wicked, but it does benefit the leader. Thus the leader is responsible for the people as a congregation. And he or she also represents the spiritual condition of the people on a national basis before the Lord. This is an immutable God principle. It's not something that any nation can hold themselves up as being exempt. Thus Israel's fate is squarely on Solomon's royal shoulders because the Lord has put it there. England's fate is on their Prime Minister's shoulders. The United States' fate is on our President's shoulders. And each represents the spiritual condition of the nation they govern before God. And so on. It's been throughout the world in all times and in all eras. And thus, the Lord lays out these four conditions that Solomon must follow. Otherwise, the consequences will be what we're going to read in chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 9. We're going to reread just uh, these four verses. Page 380 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. But if you turn away from following me, you or your children, and you don't observe my mitzvot, my commandments and regulations which I've set before you, and you go and serve other gods worshiping them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them. This house which I consecrated for my name, I'll eject from my sight. And Israel will become an example to avoid an object of scorn among all peoples. This house now so exalted, everyone passing by will gasp in shock at the sight of it and will ask, why has Adonai done this to the land and to this house? But the answer will be, it's because they abandoned Adonai their God, who bought, brought their ancestors out of the land of Egypt, who took hold of other gods and worshiping and serving them. This is why Adonai brought all these calamities on them. Notice that there's two main consequences for not meeting these four conditions. God will abandon the temple and God will eject Israel from the land. Now several of the ancient sages have interpreted verse 6 where it says, but if you turn away from me, you or your children, as meaning King Solomon uh, uh, or the people of Israel. That is, your children are meaning the citizens of Israel. So the idea is that even if the king is righteous, if the people behave wickedly, then these curses of God come upon the nation. That interpretation is terribly flawed all right, and without merit. And it only serves the rabbinical agenda to prove that Solomon, as was his father David, a 100% righteous man, all right, despite what we might read about them in the scriptures. And thus, when 
Israel is divinely punished, supposedly it has nothing to do with the actions of any of David's descendants, but rather it's a rebellion of the people. Okay. The words immediately preceding these are, you will never lack a man on the throne of Israel. And they are part of a reminder that Solomon is to obey God or else that promise of a dynasty will be removed. Further, this is the same requirement of obedience that goes for each succeeding generation of Solomon's dynasty. So the continuation of God's presence as demonstrated by God's willingness to dwell in the temple is conditional. It's based on the worthiness of Israel's leadership. And if God abandons the temple, then it becomes an empty shell with no value at all. Thus verse 8 explains that what was once a magnificent monument to Yehovah that epitomized His glory being worked out through Israel will overnight turn into something that will shock those from other lands who, who knew it from prior times when God dwelled there and, and He was blessing it. Some people will look at the temple building in horror and anguish. Others will view it and, and kind of smirk enjoy its demise. But all will ask, how did this happen? And God says that because the current king of Israel disobeyed, because he elected to follow other gods and did not, uh, did not follow the four conditions, then the Lord views these actions as amounting to abandonment of him by the whole congregation. Does it bother you that as followers you are judged according to the actions and spiritual conditions of the leader? Yeah. But consider then that it cuts both ways. And this biblical principle is as foundational for a nation as it is for an individual being blessed because it is the righteousness of our leader, Yeshua HaMashiach, that makes us righteous. Makes us eligible for God's blessing. As members of God's kingdom, with our king being God himself, then we will be judged follower by follower according to his deeds and perfection. Let's read some more of chapter 9. We're going to read verses uh, 10 through 14. At the end of 20 years, during which time Shlomo had built the two buildings, the house of Adonai and the royal palace, King Shlomo gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galil. Uh, recall that Hiram, the king of Zor, had supplied Shlomo with cedar and cypress logs and with all the gold Shlomo wanted. And Hiram came over from Zor to see the cities Shlomo had given him, but he wasn't satisfied with them. And he said, what kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother? So they had been called the land of Kabul. 
good for nothing till this day. Hiram had sent the king four tons of gold. Well, Solomon has made a bad turn. He's succumbing to his great wealth and his position and power and intellect. And King Hiram of Tyre was a true partner in building the temple and Solomon's palace. And now in return, King Shlomo seems to be giving away cities in Israel to Hiram in gratitude for his help. I mean, what a, what a shameful thing to do. But how expedient. I mean, what we see here is something that we always need to keep in mind. Be careful who you become indebted to because someday you're going to have to repay. Especially in the next chapter of 1 Kings, in the Queen of Sheba episode, we're going to get a glimpse of this otherworldly wealth that had become King Shlomo's in Israel's. But in case it hasn't occurred to you yet, none of it is coming from the land of Israel, but rather from foreign places. Israel has never had any valuable natural resources to harvest. No gold, no silver, no vast forests, no exotic creatures that were desired by other nations. Gold, silver, timber, precious gems, exotic creatures, these all had to be imported from abroad. They had to be provided by pagan Gentiles. King Solomon completely depended on non-God worshippers for expertise and for materials even to build the temple to Jehovah. The chief source of this being Hiram. Now it was time to pay the piper. And of course, what would Solomon use to pay him? Except all that Israel had to offer. A piece of the promised land. Now it's interesting, however, to try to properly characterize the nature of what went on. Once Solomon offered these 20 Israelite cities and and their surrounding territories up in the beautiful and fertile areas of the Northlands called the Galil or the Galilee. The way most translations have it is that Solomon offered these territories. Hiram came to view his new land, but he wasn't pleased with what he saw, so he rejected it. He gave it back as an insult. And thus he gave this rejected 20-city region the negative epithet of Kabul. And it has been declared in Bible commentaries that Kabul means worthless, good for nothing. However, there is another and much more likely interpretation. Most Jewish scholars have a real problem with translating Kabul as worthless. Rather, it more means binding or collateral. In other words, it's a term that has to do with debt and with securing debt. Binding is meant in the sense of offering collateral 
as proof of a debt and as binding surety for a debt. This makes far more sense for the context of the passage. Thus, what we have here is that Solomon didn't give these cities away to King Hiram per se, but he did offer them as a debt guarantee for the enormous national debt he had piled up on Israel for the immense sums of gold and valuable and rare timber and skilled labor that he had obtained from Hiram. See, Hiram was a friend. He was an ally of Israel. But he wasn't naive or simple. He, of course, held his own national interest above Israel's. So he would loan the modern equivalent of scores of millions of dollars to King Shlomo, but not without some concrete assurances that his nation would be repaid. Thus, these 20 cities of northern Israel were essentially the collateral for the loan that would have been Hiram's by default if Israel failed to repay the debt. And by the way, notice that King Solomon, who was a member of the southern Israelite tribe of Judah, didn't blink at offering Hiram some northern tribal territories as collateral for his projects, but of course nothing in Judah was put in jeopardy. See, Hiram now went to see these 20 cities. He found them as insufficient collateral, and so he rejected them as such. Now, when we think of the enormous amount of gold, here it's said to be four tons that Hiram loaned, to Solomon, plus the vast quantities of, of material and labor, then, then Hiram must have had high expectations for the value of this region up in the, the Galil. Obviously, the region failed to meet his expectations. Thus, the region became known as what it was, Kabul, collateral. That certainly would have been a degrading name as far as its residents were concerned. Hiram had already given Solomon the bulk of the labor and its materials, so it was too late to break the deal, which he probably wouldn't have done anyway. But in the end, Solomon can't really be regarded as any less guilty for putting at risk part of God's kingdom as surety for a loan from a pagan than for simply exchanging the land for, re for payment of the loan because if Solomon had defaulted, the result would have been identical, would have been the same. And yet, there is a caveat for all of this that might help to explain Solomon's attitude about these cities and not being very concerned about what became of them. And we find that in Second Chronicles. In 2 Chronicles 8, 1 and 2, it says this. Don't turn there. At the end of 20 years, during which time Shlomo had built the house of Adonai in his own palace, Shlomo built up the cities which Hiram had given to Shlomo and had the people of Israel live there. See, in this passage, by the way, Hiram is called Huram which is just a typical issue, by the way, in ancient Hebrew, of, of, of trying to determine the vowel signs. Anyway, apparently the idea is that these 20 cities were indeed Israelite 
territory, but they were occupied by non-Israelites, probably Canaanites, on a, on a peaceful basis, no doubt. These residents had given their allegiance to Shlomo. And we read that on a number of occasions, Solomon used the resources of non-Hebrews living in Israel for his own profit because the Hebrew majority wouldn't have protested that approach. So Solomon offered the collateral of 20 cities that were populated with non-Israelites. And this displeased Hiram because, of course, as a king, he fully understood that what Solomon was offering as a loan guarantee wasn't all that valuable to Solomon as it would have been had tribal Israelites possessed these cities. However, later, Shlomo put government funds into building up these cities. And when he did, naturally he moved Israelites into this formerly Canaanite populated area. A very popular move, no doubt. And probably one designed to placate those northern Israelite tribes who would have felt pretty insulted for Solomon offering parts of their territory to Hiram. You know, politicians have always known how to spend other people's money for their own benefit. Let's read a little bit more. We're going to read verses 15 through 23. Following the account, following is the account of the forced labor levied by King Shlomo for building the house of Adonai, his own palace, the Milo, the wall of Yerushalayim, the cities of Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up, taken Gezer, burned it to the ground, and killed the Canaanites living in the city. Then he had given it as a dowry for his daughter, Shlomo's wife. So Shlomo rebuilt Gezer. He also rebuilt Lor Beth Horon, Belat, and Tadmor in the desert in the land, as well as all the cities that Shlomo had for storing supplies. The cities for his chariots, the cities for his horsemen, the other buildings Shlomo wanted to build for himself in Yerushalayim, in the Lebanon, and throughout the land he ruled. All the people still left from the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites who were not part of the people of Israel, that is, their descendants remaining after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were not able to destroy completely, from them Shlomo levied his forced laborers, as it is to this day. But Shlomo did not raise any of his forced labor from the people of Israel. Rather, they were the soldiers, his servants, administrators, commanders, the officials in charge of his chariots and, and horsemen. There were 550 chief officers over Shlomo's work in charge of the workers. <clears throat> Our mo modern politicians have nothing on Solomon. Here we see that he was the tax and spend king of Israel. <laughs> but thankfully in our time, the tax is money. What we see in these passages is that the levy that Shlomo put upon his people was primarily forced labor. And we get a list of the major projects that this construction 
conscripted labor force was used for, and besides the temple and, and, and Solomon's personal palace are listed, the Milo, the Wall of Jerusalem, the cities of Hatzor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And we're going to begin to run across these places and names regularly from here forward. And, and some play a significant role in end times matters, by the way. So let's take a few minutes to familiarize ourselves with them. Now, Milo literally means earthen rampart. It is a fortified wall structure used as a uh, defensive position on the Kidron Valley side of the city of, of David. Its design is as a retaining wall that has been backfilled with, with rubble and, and soil. The Milo that we read about here has been rediscovered. And here it is. All right, And you can visit it. And if you're going with me in November, you will visit it um, in Israel. It was originally built by the Jebusites. Later fortified by David. Now rebuilt and strengthened by King Solomon. Now the wall of Yerushalayim is referring to defensive walls that went up and beyond those of the city of David. You see these walls here. Okay, Solomon had been extending the city on up the hill towards the Temple Mount. There was an undeveloped space between the city of David and the Temple Mount that was called the Ophel. And this was where Jerusalem was first expanded. This wall of Jerusalem mentioned here is bound to be the wall that was designed to join the city of David with the Temple Mount. So he extended the walls and thus enclosed the Ophel area. Now, Hatzor and Megiddo were in the Galilee region. Here you see on this map the, the, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, Jordan River. Here we have what's known to us, uh, to, the, to the Jews as the Kinneret, to us as the Sea of Galilee, up north. And Hatzor and Megiddo were strategic military outposts that sat along the invaluable Via Maris trade route. Hatzor served as a fortress to guard the, the northern flank of Israel from the area of Syria. And likely this was one of Solomon's most important fortifications. Megiddo is better known today in Christian circles as Har Megiddo or Armageddon. All right. Har means hill or mountain, thus the name the Hill of Megiddo. This is the place of the end times prophetic war to end all wars. In ancient times, it, it guarded the pass into the, to the Jezreel Valley that over the centuries was the major north-south, east-west trade route crossroads. And it was also a battlefield, an amazingly fertile agricultural region. And, and all of this since time immemorial. This may have been Solomon's most famous and extensive chariot city, Megiddo. 
outside of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, one can see the excavated remains of the stables and the fortifications to this day. Now, Gezer and Beit Horon were in the center of Israel, more or less at the southern border of Ephraim's tribal territory. We get an interesting aside in verse 16, explaining how King Shlomo had acquired Gezer. Now let me pause for a moment just to note that by these passages explaining how Gezer became Israelite, and then a few verses earlier how the 20 cities used as collateral for a debt owed to King Hiram and time became Hebrew cities, we see that still in Solomon's day, Israel had many pockets of cities and towns within the Promised Land that were Canaanite or or occupied by some foreigners. It would be as though in the modern USA there would be substantial towns and cities that were thoroughly Native American, not assimilated into the European-based American culture. So it's not a matter of an enemy occupying some cities within an otherwise sovereign nation. But rather, these were cities primarily occupied by by other ethnic groups that were generally on peaceful terms with Israel. Gezer was a Canaanite city that was captured some years earlier by Solomon's father-in-law, Pharaoh Siamun of, of Egypt. He had destroyed the city by fire. But then he gave the remains of this city to his daughter as a a wedding present for her marriage to Solomon. The bottom line here is that the marriage of the Pharaoh's daughter to Solomon plus the giving of the defeated but destroyed Canaanite city of Gezer to Solomon created a strong and friendly political alliance between Israel and Egypt. Gezer was in a strategically valuable location. And as soon as he could, Solomon moved Hebrews into the city. And he used government funds to rebuild it. It was strategic because it controlled a particular section of the Via Maris trade route. And it was about 700 feet above sea level so you could see miles in every direction. Now, interestingly, again to demonstrate the geopolitical reality of the Israelites' time in the Promised Land, we see in Joshua 10 that centuries earlier, Joshua actually captured Gezer, killing the king, but then the Philistines gained control of it. It was even assigned the important status as being a Levitical city in Joshua 21. Apparently, the Philistines eventually lost control to some Canaanites, then the Canaanites lost control to Egypt, and now Egypt gave control to Solomon as a political gift of friendship. So this acquisition of land and territory was uneven, and often the same piece of land changed hands regularly for any number of reasons. Egypt's interest in Gezer was economic, and it had to do with the Via Maris trade route. Gezer 
became another of Solomon's chariot cities. And each of these chariot cities was also where Israel's tax collectors had offices to extract a levy from the many trade caravans that passed through it. Now we also find a fleeting mention of Solomon building buildings in Lebanon. So we can see just how far north his influence extended. But starting in verse 20, we get a listing of the various ethnic groups that still lived within the Israelite tribal territories in peace with Israel and under Solomon's rule. And it was from those various groups that Solomon conscripted the labor for his many projects. Now verse 22 makes it clear that Solomon did not use Hebrews as forced laborers. Now this of course was a political consideration. Instead, in a kind of role reversal for how it was for Israel in Egypt, the Israelites were the foremen and the taskmasters over the foreign labor pool. And national Israelites also formed the loyal government administrators, the military commanders, uh, other officials working for Shlomo. Let me also be clear that while this was forced labor, the laborers were not slaves. It was no different than the taxes we all pay to our government, which is also forced, so to speak. That is, we don't pay by choice, but by dictate of our government. We're not at all slaves, but the law compels us to give or be prosecuted. It was that way in Israel, under Solomon, except the taxes amounted to labor and not money. Let's move on. We'll finish up chapter 9. Starting at verse 24. Pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of David to her house, which Shlomo had built for her, and after that he built the Milo. Three times a year, Shlomo offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar, which he had built for Adonai, offering incense with them on the altar before Adonai, so he finished the house. King Shlomo built a fleet of ships, and Etzion Gever by Elat, on the shore of the Sea of Suf in the land of Edom. Hiram sent some of his own servants, experienced sailors who understood the sea, to serve with Shlomo's servants. They went to Ophir. They took gold from there, 14 tons of it, which they brought back to King Shlomo. Hebrew tradition better explains why this verse about Solomon's wife and and, and her move from the city of David to the palace was even included. It was that when Solomon married, (coughs) pardon me, he gave, married her, he gave her a place to live in the city of David. But as soon as he could build a palace outside the city of David, he then moved her into it. See, David has used the area of the Milo as a place for the many pilgrims who came to Jerusalem to meet and to congregate. It was intentionally arranged as an area 
for an open public courtyard. But Solomon confiscated that area. And he built private quarters upon it for his wife's servants, thus eliminating its use for the common pilgrims. Thus we get the words that only after Pharaoh's daughter was moved into her new quarters did the Milo refurbishment occur that entirely changed the character from a public meeting place to private quarters for the king's servants. Verse 25 seems straightforward enough until we consider what's being implied. First, the mention of Solomon officiating over sacrifices three times per year is referring to the three Torah-ordained Chag or pilgrimage biblical feasts of Matzah, Shavuot, and Sukkot. What makes this troubling is that we have Solomon offering the sacrifices at the altar. And that was by Torah law supposed to be a task only for the priest to perform. This is just one of the many indulgences that Solomon took upon himself. It was seriously wrong and sinful. And it shows Solomon's rapid descent into self-importance and into a sense that he was authorized to manipulate or change God's laws at his whim. Now to the to end this chapter we get a most interesting few words about Solomon building a fleet of ships. Now this took place on the finger of the Red Sea called the Gulf of Aqaba. The building of the ships and their home port was near the city of Elat. Ancient Elat was really more on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba and what is modern day Jordan. Modern Elat is on the western side of the Gulf but it too is a port city. As Israel was not a nation of seafarers Solomon was able to get Hiram to send some experienced sailors and shipbuilders to supervise and teach. This fleet sailed the Red Sea, stopping at Arabian and African ports of call and probably ventured as far as the Indian Ocean. The mention of Ophir as a place where gold was obtained in substantial quantities has always intrigued Bible scholars and there's no agreement as to its location. However, any idea that it was in the Mediterranean, as is often surmised, is illogical. And it's unrealistic, and certainly Solomon's fleet did not sail down the eastern coast of Africa, around the Horn of Africa, down and around South Africa, back up Africa's west coast, and then enter the Mediterranean through the Straits of Gibraltar. Let's move on to chapter 10. When the queen of Shva heard what was being said about Shlomo, 
Because of the name of Adonai, she came to test him with difficult questions. She arrived in Yerushalayim accompanied by a very great retinue, including camels bearing spices and gold in great abundance and precious stones. And when she appeared before Shlomo, she spoke with him about everything on her heart. Shlomo answered all of her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king that he couldn't explain to her. And after the king of Sheba had seen all of Shlomo's wisdom, the palace he had built, the food at his table, the manner of seating his officials, the manner in which his staff served him, how they were dressed, his personal servants, his burnt offering which he offered in the house of Adonai, it left her breathless. She said to the king, What I heard in my own country about your deeds and wisdom is true. But I couldn't believe the report until I came and saw it for myself. Actually, they didn't tell me the half of it. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the reports I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy the servants of yours who are always here attending you and get to hear your wisdom. Blessed be Adonai your God who took pleasure in you to put you on the throne of Israel because of Adonai's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to administer judgment and justice fairly. And then she gave the king four tons of gold a huge amount of spices, precious stones. Never again did there arrive such an abundance of spices as those the Queen of Sheba gave to King Shlomo. Hiram's fleet, which had brought gold from Ophir, now brought in from Ophir a large quantity of sandalwood and precious stones. The king used the sandalwood to make columns for the house of Adonai and for the royal palace and also lyres and lutes for the singers. No sandalwood like it has come or has been seen to this day. King Shlomo gave the Queen of Sheba everything she wanted, whatever she asked, in addition to the presents he gave her on his own initiative. After this, she returned and went back to her own country, she and her servants. The weight of the gold Shlomo received annually came to 22 tons of gold, besides that which came from sales taxes, customs duties, assessments collected by all the kings of the mixed peoples, and by the district governors. King Shlomo made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 15 pounds of gold went into one shield. He made 300 more shields of hammered gold with three and three quarters pounds going into one shield. The king put these in the house of the Lebanon forest. The king also made a large throne of ivory, overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, a back with a rounded top, arms on either side of the seat, two lions standing beside the arms, and twelve more lions standing on each side of the six steps. Nothing like it had ever been made in any kingdom. All King Shlomo's drinking vessels were of gold. All the utensils in the house of the Lebanon forest were of pure gold. None was of silver. For in Shlomo's time, it was regarded as having little value. The king had a fleet of large Tarshish ships along with Hiram's fleet. Once every three years, the Tarshish fleet came in bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, peacocks. So King Shlomo surpassed all the kings of the earth in both wealth and wisdom. All the earth sought to have an audience with Shlomo in order to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Each one brought his present. Articles of silver, articles of gold, clothing, armor, spices, horses, mules. This continued year after year. Shlomo amassed chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. He assigned them to the chariot cities and to the king uh, in Jerusalem. The king made silver 
in Jerusalem as common as stones. And he made cedars as abundant as sycamore fig trees are in the Shephelah. Shlomo's horses had been brought from Egypt and from Kiveh, with the king's agents having brought them from the dealers in Kiveh at the going price. A chariot from Egypt cost 15 pounds of silver shekels, a horse three and three quarter pounds of shekels. All the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram purchased them at these prices through Shlomo's agents. This chapter begins with the story of the famous Queen of Sheba. And it's put here to show that God fulfilled His promise to Solomon to gift him with great wisdom and unprecedented wealth. We're not going to get much farther today than just the first verse. Because there's more here than meets the eye. First let's talk about who the Queen of Sheba might have been. It's nearly certain that due to a copyist error, the spelling of Sheva ought to be have been with a sheen and not a sheen. That is, the first letter of her name should have been the sound of an S and not an SH. Thus, she was the queen of Saba, not the queen of Sheba. The city of Saba was the ancient capital of the Arabian culture of the Sabaeans. Okay? They were traders in gold, incense, and precious stones. These descendants of Ishmael were located along the Arabian coast of the Red Sea, and they were known to, to traditionally have queens instead of kings. Okay? They were moon god worshippers. And as one might well expect, there is a close tie between Islam and the Sabaeans. In fact, the account of the queen of the Sabaeans, the queen of Saba, the queen of Sheba, and her visit with Solomon is told extensively in the Muslim Koran in Surah 27. Now, our English translations hide what is a really interesting wordplay in the first verse. Where the English says that the Queen of Sheba heard what was being said about Shlomo because of the name of Jehovah, the Hebrew says this. The Queen of Sheba, Shema, what was being Shama of Shlomo because of the Shem of Jehovah. Okay. Not only do we have this rather memorable litany of the Hebrew letter Sheen, but also a word play on the Hebrew word Shema. Okay, what is being said is that the Queen of Sheba, Shema, she heard and acted on the Shema, the report or the description about Solomon, because of the Shem, the reputation, the characteristics of the God of Israel. And the idea is, Yehovah is getting the credit as Solomon's God for all the amazing wealth and wisdom of Solomon and his nation of Israel. We're also told that she came to test him with hard questions. In Hebrew, she came to Nasa, 
Shlomo with Kedot. Nasa means to test or to prove. Kedot means riddles. Okay, so quite literally, we'll talk about this more next week. Quite literally, the Queen of Sheba came all the way to meet Solomon and test to see if his wisdom was as stupefying as she had heard by giving him riddles to solve. Okay, that's all for this week.